And again, we're looking now at the, the sixth commandment. Uh, it's found in verse 13 of Exodus 20. Very short verse. Uh, the commandment says, Exodus 20, verse 13, You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Uh, already we have seen that this commandment teaches us to honor human life. Uh, human beings have dignity because we bear the image of God Himself. And we are to show our regard for God by regarding those whom He has created in His image. And we spent most of our time this morning looking at the sin of heart murder, of hatred, unrighteous anger. Uh, we heard how Jesus applied the sixth commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, reminding us that we are to love people and not to hate them. Uh, we are to be a people of forgiveness and mercy and compassion. Uh, we're not to hold a grudge or treat others wickedly. Rather, we are to be known as a people who seek reconciliation with those who have conflict with us. And at the end this morning, we briefly saw that Jesus is our greatest example of what obedience to the sixth commandment looks like. Jesus perfectly loved every human being. He was willing to lay down his own life for sinners. He put others before himself. He took the role of a servant washing his disciples' feet. Uh, he gave his own life to serve the welfare of others. And so Christ is our example in this commandment, just as he is our example in all of the Ten Commandments. Well, tonight we're going to look at two more questions concerning the Sixth Commandment. And the first is this, how does the Holy Spirit help us in keeping this sixth commandment? Now that we have come confessing our sins to God, now that we have been saved by Jesus and we are forgiven and His blood cleanses us from, from all our sin, now we're not trying to keep this commandment in order to merit God's salvation. We're trying to keep this commandment because we're already saved. And we want to live a life of gratitude and worship to God He's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now working inside of us to help us live out these laws from the inside out. How does the Spirit help us keep the Sixth Commandment? Uh, one answer has been mentioned already in past messages on other commandments. Namely, that the Spirit helps us to see God and to love God. Uh, in the pages of the Bible... The Spirit helps us to know God as He is. And the Spirit gives us a heart to trust this God, to love this God, and to adore this God. But that matters here because of what we said this morning. The more we value God, the more we will value others. Uh, the more we love God and honor Him and esteem Him, the more we will care about those who bear His image. So as we are in our Bibles and the Spirit helps us to see more of God and to fall more in love with God and to want to honor this God, at the same time, the Spirit is helping us become a people of love horizontally towards other people. Well, let me mention a, a second related answer. The Spirit helps us see and love our Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. 
the Spirit is growing our love for Jesus, and the Spirit within us is growing our love for the kingdom that Christ is building. You say, why does that matter? What does that have to do with the sixth commandment? Well, it matters because Christ died for all kinds of people. And his kingdom is made up of all kinds of people. And so as we are falling more in love with Christ, as we're falling more in love with his kingdom, we're realizing that the kingdom we're falling in love with is people. All kinds of people. And any hostilities that we have in our heart towards other kinds of people are put away as we fall in love with Christ's kingdom. As we study the Bible, as we gather with other believers, the Holy Spirit shows us the diversity of Christ's people. That Jesus didn't come and die just for white people, or just for wealthy people, or just for smart people. Indeed, in heaven itself, we will see Christ's glory in multitudes of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation saved by His blood. And so the Spirit is helping us learn that we are to value all kinds of people. There are no exceptions to the Sixth Commandment. We're to honor and protect and serve the welfare of all kinds of people. Because they're all precious to Christ. So a few implications of that. Uh, First, we should value people of all skin colors. We should value people of all skin colors. There is to be no racism in the Christian life. We are never to regard people as worthy of more or less care or concern based on the color of their skin. The Spirit is teaching us that there is a fundamental unity to the human race. People may have different skin colors, they may come from different cultures, they may speak different languages, people may have different customs, but there is ultimately one race, and it is the race of Adam, the human race. And what makes us human is that we all bear the image of God, and there's no indication anywhere in any page of the Bible that one skin color or another is excluded from that. Nor is there any indication that one race bears the image of God better or more than another race. Uh, Remember how there was a time in our nation's history when slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. In the original text of our Constitution, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. Could it be that, that some think that certain people are truly more human than others? That some people uh, more accurately represent the image of God than others because of the color of their skin. There's no evidence for that in Scripture. Genesis 1 teaches that man as a whole, male and female, whatever our race, bears the image of God. And not three-fifths, but the image of God complete as God intended it. Uh, Think about the Holocaust. Remember how there was this wicked belief underneath the Holocaust that one race is inherently superior to another race. The only way one race could be inherently superior to another race is if somehow one race is inherently less depraved than the other. And yet the Bible makes clear that we're all dead in our sin. 
that depravity touches each of us all the way through us, from our minds to our emotions. There is no inherently holy race of men. And so these, tru- these two truths are the great levelers of all mankind. We all bear the image of God, and we all bear it in a distorted fashion because we're all sinners. No race is superior to another. We are all united in Adam. When Adam entered the covenant of works in Genesis 2, he did so on behalf of every single human being. When Adam fell in the garden, it wasn't just white people who were affected or Asians or Africans or Latinos. All of us fell. The entire human race united together. We all fell in our one federal head, Adam. And so here's a question. I've asked it before, but it's helpful for me when I'm examining my heart, so I like to bring it back up from time to time. When you see a person of a different skin color, do you immediately see the ways that you are the same, or do you immediately see the ways that you are different? In all of the most important aspects, you are the same as a person of another skin color. You share a common father, Adam. You're part of the same ultimate race, the race of men. You share the same basic problem, sin. You share the same basic need for a Savior, and there is only one Savior for both of you, Jesus. You are, sa- you are the same in, in the most obvious physical ways. You both have a head and stomachs and legs. You both have eyes and a nose and, and a mouth. The fact is, there is more that unites you to another human being then separates you. And this is even more so if that person speaks the same language as you and lives in in generally the same culture as you. We have far more in common with with African Americans here in Rocky Mount who speak our language and share many of the same customs than we do with people whose skin are just as white as ours in, in Russia. Why then, when we see someone of another skin color, would we be immediately affected by that one difference? Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but I do think that here in the South, there is still a tendency for many of us to look at a person of another skin color as if they're somehow inherently lower, as if they're somehow inherently dirty. Uh, If a white person fixes you a sandwich with his bare hands, perhaps you happily receive it and eat it, If a black person fixes you a sandwich with their bare hands, do you have the feeling that somehow it's dirty? There's something wrong with it? Or maybe you shake the hand of a a Latino person, and then without even thinking, you subconsciously feel the need to wipe your hands on your pants. And maybe you wouldn't do the same thing if that person had been white. Uh, These actions, if they're true of you, and they may not be, but if they're true of you, I think they, they reveal something. Uh, A racism that's deep within us that we must repent of. That we must beg God to help us overcome. We are to think scripturally. And scripturally, we are one race, part of one family tree that goes all the way back to Adam. We all bear the image of God. And there will be people of every skin color in the kingdom of Christ. To the glory of Jesus. Second, second implication. We should value people with differing mental or physical abilities. You shall not murder 
does not apply only to those human beings who happen to be fully healthy and have full human capabilities. There is a terrible idea in Western cultures right now that certain handicaps, that certain disabilities, that certain mental incapacities make a person's life no longer worth protecting. That that person's life is now of lesser value than other life. There are some who would suggest that the best thing for us to do for these people is to end their lives so that they don't take energy and time and resources from other healthy human beings. That was the view of Nazi Germany. Hitler taught that wartime was the best time to eliminate those whom he deemed incurably ill. But it remains uh, much more subtle. Uh, it's, in, it's incipient in, in Western cultures, but it's still there. Um, just think about the reports in the last couple of weeks that now uh, Iceland, the, the headline is, uh, Iceland has now uh, almost completely removed Down syndrome from their nation. And people were celebrating this as a success. They've, they've somehow found a way to make their population free of Down syndrome. How? Did they find a cure? No. They're just aborting every child that has Down syndrome. It's the same idea. Oh, if, if a person has Down syndrome, their life is inherently worth less. Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University, has been arguing for decades now that human beings with limited abilities should be considered less worthy of dignity or of protection than others. Uh, in one New York Times piece, he addressed a severely disabled girl named Ashley. And Ashley was unable to walk. Ashley was unable to communicate with others. Uh, the time that he was writing, Ashley was nine years old, but her mental age was still that of, a, of an infant, still that of around of a, a three-month-old. And here was Singer's argument. He said, people like Ashley actually have less intrinsic worth than other human beings, and in fact, should be considered as less valuable than intelligent animals. Singer said, I'm quoting him, We are always ready to find dignity in human beings, including those whose mental age will never exceed that of an infant. But we don't attribute dignity to dogs or cats, though they clearly operate at a more advanced mental level than human infants. Just making that comparison provokes outrage in some quarters. But why should dignity always go together with species membership, no matter what the characteristics of the individual may be? Elsewhere he says, If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find the non-human to have superior capacities, both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can plausibly be considered morally significant. One more book. This is from his quote, Practical Ethics. The fact that a being is a human being in the sense of a member of the species Homo sapiens is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness that make a difference. Infants lack these characteristics. Killing them, therefore, cannot be equated with killing normal human beings or any other self-conscious beings. 
I hope that's chilling to you. Oh, that sends shivers down your spine when you hear that kind of talk. He actually makes the case that killing an infant is less heinous than killing an intelligent dog, than killing a, a pig. Friends, the Bible was clear that being a member of the species Homo sapien, as he puts it, that being a true human being is immediately grounds for that life to be protected. Because we are different from all the other animals in the world. We are not animals. We are image bearers of God. Uh, The murder of any human being is sinful and wicked. The sixth commandment does not have... um, does not have fine print. It does not have exceptions. Okay? All human beings are created in the image of God and have dignity regardless of their actual capacities or capabilities. And that's because just being human means that you've been exalted by God above all earthly creatures. Humans enjoy an office, a status, a role as those given dominion over this world. If a person is born into the royal family, and yet they are ill or cannot fully function as most kings or queens would, they're still part of the royal family. And the nation is still required to treat that member of the royal family with honor. Having disabilities, however severe, does not change the fact that a person is indeed human. And I am convinced that Christ himself lived and died for the salvation of millions of handicapped and disabled people. And if he loves them that much, that he would give his life for them, who are we to disregard them? Who are we to devalue them or to say that they're not worth so much? It should be our joy to love all people as Christ sets the example. Third implication. We should value people of all ages. We should value people of all ages. There there is a utilitarian view out there that says a person is only as valuable as their contributions to society. So when children are really young, they're disposable. When a person becomes elderly, they're no longer valuable. Their days of usefulness are over. And we see this playing out in places where doctor-assisted suicide has been legalized. And we see family members putting pressure on their elderly relatives to to go ahead and get out of the picture. Uh, Sometimes the elderly person begins to think about the financial burden and the other burden that they might be putting on their children and grandchildren. And they suddenly feel like the right thing for them to do is to go ahead and end their lives. That is anti-Christian. It's anti-Bible. We are to honor the elderly We are to believe that God does much that is good in the hearts and the souls of those who are younger as they learn to care for those who are older. Just as God does much that is good in the hearts and the lives of young parents as they care for that that baby who's helpless and needs their help. Boy, that's a sanctifying season of life, isn't it? But it's a good season. It's important. I fear we will be shocked on the day of judgment. When we find out just how many senior adults were abandoned, neglected, or abused in nursing homes and other facilities and other contexts. Uh, How many older people have died of basic ailments like dehydration or starvation simply because they were being neglected or mistreated. 
God will bring justice against every kind of murder on the last day. Including those who helped bring about the death of the very young. And judgment on those who helped bring about the death of the very old. So Mount Hermon, let me be as as clear as I can of the biblical position, the truth about human dignity. All people bear the image of God. All people have human dignity. All people are to be valued. And now our final question. Our final question. What are some special issues related to the Sixth Commandment? There are many. And so we're going to hit on some tonight. And as usual, some will have to wait till Wednesday. So tonight, I'm going to try and address the issue of war, the issue of the death penalty, and the issue of self-defense. Wednesday night, Lord willing, we'll touch on abortion, suicide, uh, manslaughter, which is an interesting circumstance, and then any other issues that may be on your heart or your mind. So let's tackle these that we have for tonight. First, is it right to kill another human being if you are doing so in a war? Uh, There are those who would argue that Christians should be pacifists. That Christians should be against war, that Christians at the very least should not ever participate themselves in in active service in a war. Uh, It's not at all uncommon for people to put Gandhi and Jesus together as if they were both preachers of the same message. As if they were both preachers and models of the same pacifist message. Uh, Liberal Christians in particular will argue that the Sixth Commandment, they say it forbids killing of any kind, even in war. That war is contrary to Jesus' teaching that we should turn the other cheek. When our enemies attack us, we are to respond with love. When our enemies attack us, we're to respond with kindness. We are never to respond with violence, and therefore there should be no war. That's their view. There are a number of serious issues with that position. Uh, One is that it fails to reckon with how you love your fellow man when your fellow man is being attacked. Uh, Another is that its logical conclusion would not just do away with armies. It would also do away with the police. It would also do away with, with all law enforcement. And a third issue is that this view fails to come to grips with Jesus' own act of driving out the money changers in the temple. Or the fact that Jesus taught his disciples to sell their cloaks and to buy a sword if they didn't already have one. Meaning for protection and in case it's needed. The more traditional view is, I think, the right view when it comes to this issue. Killing someone in a war, when it is done justly, is not murder. Killing someone in a war when done justly is not murder. So for a long time, Christians have talked about what's called just war theory. Just war theory. It's an attempt to go to the Bible and to say, are there principles that can guide societies and guide Christians in determining when a war is truly just? When it is right to fight, when it is right to engage someone, even to the point of death in war. Uh, There are two components to this. One is, when is it right to declare war? 
And the other is, once a war is declared, how do you carry it out in a way that is truly just and honors God? So let me give you just a few principles of, of just war theory. Uh, one would be that a just war is one fought for the purposes of defense and protection as a matter of last resort. Uh, it's a war fought for the purposes of defense and protection as a matter of last resort. Uh, Christians should definitely not be warmongering people. We should not be a people who are actively seeking to initiate violence, actively seeking to initiate war. War for us is, is, is the last resort because we do believe that all people were created in the image of God, and we take that seriously. It's a serious thing for someone's life to be taken. So the cause must be just, and it must be a cause in which we need to protect other human life. Not just resources. Definitely shouldn't be for monetary gain. Okay? If we're going to war, it better be to protect life. Second, a just war is one declared by a righteous authority. A just war is one declared by a righteous authority. The Bible tells us to honor the authorities that God has placed above us. Uh, a righteous war is not just called by a bunch of folks getting together and saying, hey, let's, let's go fight. It needs to be uh, called, it needs to be declared by a righteous authority. Third, a just war is one that protects civilians whenever possible. It protects civilians Whenever possible. A just war, because it regards human life as sacred and takes it seriously, is not going to be reckless in the way people fight, in the dropping of bombs, and in the use of drones and those kinds of things. It's going to seek to protect civilians as much as possible. Now it's war. War is messy, and we understand that. And, and we're engaging in war in a fallen world, so it's, it's not always going to be easy to protect civilian life. But we ought to do our best. And then number four, a just war is one that uses proportionate military action. Proportionate military action. Meaning that if uh, another country shoots a missile in, at us and it lands in a field and hurts a cow, we don't respond with a nuclear bomb. Right? That, that you don't, you don't uh, up the ante so much so quickly that you, that you suddenly increase needlessly the violence, increase needlessly the bloodshed and the death of human beings created in the images of God. Proportionate military action. So if you're a Christian soldier, you would want to make sure that if you're going to war, that you can, with a clean conscience before God, justify going to war and even being involved in the taking of human life. War is messy, and it won't always be perfect, and civilians do die, for example. But if a soldier believes the cause is just, and if he believes the war has been declared by a God-appointed civil authority, if the leaders are, are not being reckless towards civilians or using out-of-proportion attacks or weapons, then I do believe in that context the killing of an enemy is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. It is not murder and it is right. Now let me be clear. I do believe that Christians should be peacemakers. Uh, we should strive for peace always. Uh, but being a peacemaker doesn't mean the same thing as being a pacifist. I do believe a warrior can be righteous. And let me give you a few reasons why I think a warrior can be righteous. So number one, our God is a warrior. 
the Bible speaks of God this way. Exodus 15.3, the Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Uh, Psalm 24.8, who is this king of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. Second, in the Bible, God often appoints people for the purpose of war. For the purpose of war. So over and over again in the book of Judges, for example, we see God's people in trouble and he appoints a person. He raises up a person. We call them judges, but they were really military heroes. They were people who gathered the people together to go fight for the sake of the nation and the glory of God. So Gideon, Barak, Samson, these were all raised up by God in order to lead his people in fighting enemies in battles. Think about Joshua, think about Moses, think about David. These were all warriors. I'll quote from Judges 6, where God called Gideon. Uh, The angel spoke to Gideon saying, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And of course, what's interesting about that passage is that Gideon wasn't mighty at all. His might was going to come from the Lord. But the point is that Lord, the Lord called Gideon to war, and the Lord would cause him to prevail. Third, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, praises Old Testament saints for their warfare. Praises Old Testament saints for their warfare. So let me just read to you from Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 34. The writer says, what more shall I say? Time would fail for me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and his prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, and hear this, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Surely if war was inherently evil, surely if killing in war was a sin, these acts would not have been commended by God in that chapter. Theirs were just acts in the midst of just wars. Number four, Jesus never asked a military convert to resign his position. Isn't that interesting? You ever, you ever thought about that? You have the Roman centurion, a man of war, who comes to Jesus in Matthew 8. This man's entire livelihood was bound up in the military. His life was devoted to war and to battle, and yet he was also a man of great faith. This is the man of whom Jesus said, Truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. But after commending this man for his faith, did Jesus then say, but sir, one thing you lack. You must now put away your military service. You must resign your post to follow me. You must must take on the pacifist position if you're to follow me. We never hear Jesus speak that way at all. Jesus never asked anyone in the military to resign, nor did he ever indicate that they could not genuinely follow him while remaining in that role. And then fifth, the Bible teaches that governments have a special responsibility to enforce justice. And this can include war. That's my understanding of of Romans 13. 
1 through 4. We'll be there in May, somewhere around there of next year. We'll, we'll spend time looking at this. You, you listen to Romans 13, 1 through 4. See if, if you agree. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There are lots of debates right now about the proper role and responsibilities of government. But what I hear in that passage is that justice and the enforcement of justice is one of the primary responsibilities that is given to governing authorities. We can have discussions about whether governments should intervene in the affairs of other nations in order to protect those citizens from hostility or abuse. We can have discussions about whether a government should ever act preemptively to defend uh, its own people against a foreseeable coming outside threat. Those issues are difficult. They remind us we need to pray for our political leaders. I do not envy people in political power. They face really, really difficult, tough issues. But at the very least, we can say that God has given civil authorities the right to use the sword, a weapon of war, when justice requires it. I think that's enough on that subject. Let's do the death penalty. Talk about the death penalty. Is the death penalty a violation of the Sixth Commandment? Uh, Here it is important to say that there is a substantial moral difference between a murder carried out by a citizen and an execution carried out by a government. We've just heard from Romans 13 that governments are a part of God's plan for carrying out justice on this planet. And therefore, there is a difference between how you and I are to live and act as individuals and how government officials are to live and act in their capacities as officers. This is where liberal Christians, I think, do misunderstand the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus taught Christians to turn the other cheek, he was not speaking to the issue of civil governments. He was speaking to you and me as citizens and how we're to live our lives personally, day in, day out. He was speaking to us about how we should respond to hostility when it comes our way. How should you react when a coworker mistreats you? How should you respond when a family member is cruel to you? Answer, you're to respond with love and compassion and forgiveness. You're not to retaliate. You're to turn the other cheek. But governments have a very different role. Governments are under obligation to protect the people they serve and to uphold principles of righteousness. And therefore, what God has not permitted us to do as individuals He has required officials to do in their roles as authorities. Frankly, the principle of the death penalty is one of the oldest and most well-established of God's principles 
for civil authorities. So listen to Genesis 9, 5 through 6. This is God instructing Noah. Noah has gotten off the ark, and there's now a new world in front of him. Uh, A new population is going to come from his family. And God says to Noah, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What's interesting there is that verse 6 is actually written in poetic form. In the form of a memorable verse. Throughout the books of Moses, the most important principles, the most important moments uh, are, are written in the form of poetry. You'll have narrative, 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 and then a song, a poem. And that's how we remember the important moments in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Well, when God gets to that point of establishing this principle with Noah, suddenly we turn to poetry and God gives Noah this memorable verse. I'll read it to you again. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. That was to be something that people were to remember, to pass down, to have as a fundamental principle of law. When God creates man in his own image, he gives him a song. When Adam receives Eve as his wife, he breaks out in song. When Jacob blesses his sons, the future tribes of Israel, and declares their destinies, it's all in song. And this statement about the death penalty, seems like a strange song, doesn't it? But it was written as a song so that it would be remembered and received as a principle from that day forward. And it actually says why the punishment for murder should be the death penalty. It says, for God made man in his own image. Some think that the dignity of man is why we should not have the death penalty. But in reality, nothing can speak more clearly about the value and the worth that we are to show to other human beings than for those who violate that dignity to pay the ultimate price. Now there is much in our criminal justice and judicial systems that needs to be corrected. There is. Uh, certainly we do not want anyone to be put to death for a crime they did not commit. Uh, At the same time, it is not justice for a murderer to be on death row for years or even decades so that the crime is long forgotten by the time the punishment ever comes. Uh, All punishments should be just, proportionate, and swift. Our U.S. Constitution actually calls for that. But more importantly, so does God's principles. And so we should pray that God would give our leaders wisdom to bring needed change to our criminal justice system so that we would be able to issue out penalties that are just and proportionate and swift. And we should pray that God would raise up believers who can take on issues like this and help make our nation a bit more just. All right, self-defense. We'll end with the issue of self-defense. Is it a violation of the Sixth Commandment if I kill someone in self-defense? I actually think this one is a bit more difficult. Um, It's especially difficult if we're talking about someone attacking me. No one else. They're just attacking me. Should I fight back? Jesus didn't fight back. Would this be more in line with the kind of situation Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount? 
If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, what if it's not a slap, Jesus? What if it's a punch? Does that change things? Does that make a difference? Another thing to consider here is the fact that I'm a blood-bought Christian. And I know where I'm going to go when I die. If this person kills me, I know where I'm headed. If I kill them in retaliation, if I, if I fight back and kill them in self-defense, I don't know where they're going. Uh, based on the fact that they're physically attacking me, that's probably not a good sign. Probably shows that they need the gospel. That if I kill this person, they're most likely going to hell. So should I respond to their violence by enduring it, even if it means enduring it to the point of death? Should I respond to their violence by enduring it and praying for them? Uh, parents often teach their kids to fight back if a bully at school attacks them. Is that right? Does that fit with Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek? By the way, I'm not saying it's not. I just want to make you aware that I think sometimes we create so many exceptions to Jesus' command to turn the other cheek that it almost becomes meaningless. That some people water down, turn the other cheek to the point that they never follow Jesus in enduring unjust suffering at all. That being said, there is Luke 22, verse 36, where Jesus says, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, Jesus was saying there is a real time and place to have a sword and to use it. And since he was talking in the context of his apostles and then going out on their mission, probably the immediate context there is self-defense. In fact, the word for sword that Jesus uses there is the Greek word max aaron, which was a, a short sword. It was more like a, a dagger. And it was used by Jewish travelers to protect themselves from robbers or wild animals when they were walking down the, the trade routes. And therefore, I do believe that acting in self-defense as a last resort can be a justified act. That's the best I can say it. It can be. Acting in self-defense as a last resort can be a justified act. Now, any hesitation on whether to fight back is gone immediately if somebody else beside me is being attacked. If my family is under attack, suddenly there is no grounds for hesitation. There is no grounds for doubt. If we have to kill another person to protect those entrusted to us, we ought to do so. Husbands have a role of authority in their marriage. Parents have a role of authority over their children. And part of that role of authority is to be protectors. What God appointed civil authorities to do in society, men especially are to do in their homes. Uh, J.P. Moreland, Norman Geisler say this in their book on ethics. I agree with them on this. They say, to permit murder when one could have been prevented is morally wrong. To allow a rape when one could have been hindered is evil. To watch an act of cruelty to children without trying to intervene is morally inexcusable. In brief, not resisting evil is an evil of omission. And an evil of omission can be just as evil as an evil of commission. 
any man who refuses to protect his wife and children against a violent intruder fails them morally. And I think that's right. I think that's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. It's not. It doesn't have to be a purely self-centered motive, right? It's a. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I mean, even preventing someone murdering you is you seeking to prevent a violation of the sixth commandment. I mean, it's still you fighting against sin. Yeah, that's a good point. That's good. So to sum up everything we've said, love demands that we protect life. Love demands that we uphold life. Love demands that we value life. And that means doing whatever is necessary to protect those entrusted to us. And so I hope this has been been helpful. We'll talk about some of the other issues on Wednesday night. May God help us to show love and honor to Him as we show love and honor to those around us who are created in His image. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.